I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hi, Tits Out Brigade. It's Al. And it's Nathan. From the Fatal Fortunes podcast. We're big fans of Anne, and we just wanted to come on here to introduce this next episode of the podcast. I know that vulgar history has gotten me through many a long drive in the rural New England nights with her spooky tales of bad bitches gone by. If you like vulgar history, make sure to check out Fatal Fortunes, where we discuss dangerously beautiful lives whose legacies haunt us today. And now, your host, Ann Foster. Welcome to Vulgar History, a feminist women's history comedy podcast. My name is Ann Foster, and this is part three of Catalina de Arauso. So if you've listened to parts one and two, welcome back. If you haven't listened to them, I mean, welcome also. This is going to be sort of a chaotic and perhaps confusing experience for you, but I would never suggest that you not just go ahead and listen to this. And I would suspect after hearing it, you probably would want to go back and listen to parts one and two for the full context. Anyway, this is where... It all wraps up. <laughs> Her story, as you know from parts one and two, does not slow down ever. Uh, this is the part where, as we've been mentioning in parts one and two, she's going to meet literally the Pope. It's pretty exciting. Um, yeah, so the, the thrilling conclusion. And also, where did she score the scandalous scale? All of that coming up here on Vulgar History. So on to Cusco, a city just as grand as Lima in both riches and people. She'd only been there a few days when she got herself into another serious mess, quote, undeserved to tell the truth, because this time around, I was entirely blameless, whatever you may have heard. Solid. 
So one day, one day, the sheriff was murdered, and for no reason at all, everyone thought Catalina was the killer. Huh? Can't imagine. Is this like the little boy who cried wolf, but murder? Where it's like, yes, I did all those other murders, but not this but one. This one. So she was arrested, kept for five months, at which, quote, almighty God saw to it that the truth came out and along with it, my total innocence in the matter. So the real killer was found or whatever. So then she went to Lima. So at this time, the Dutch were laying siege to Lima with warships. So it was like a ship based battle, Dutch ships versus Spanish ships. Um, Lima was a Spanish city. So I think also the city was Lots of people defending it. Catalina obviously joined the Spanish forces against the Dutch, but the warship she was on heaved over and only three people managed to escape. <laughs> a barefoot Franciscan friar, a soldier, and Catalina. And they just were sort of like paddling around until a Dutch ship picked them up as prisoners. So she's a prisoner for 26 days, assuming she'd be hauled off to Holland, which would have been another great story. But no, in the end, quote, they flung me and my two companions out on the coast a good hundred miles from Lima whatever they like walked to Lima and she stayed there. Um, this is a great story. This is like an Aesop's fable level story. So she bought a cheap horse and just kind of hung out doing whatever until one day a constable approached her and was like, Hey, did you steal this horse? And two men were there like, yes, that's totally the guy who like stole our horse. That's our horse. So then she whipped. Oh, I know you like a cloak moment. She whipped off her cloak and covered the horse's head with it and was like, okay, which of the horse's eyes is blind? And one man said left and the other one said right. And Catalina whipped off the cloak like, neither. And the constable <laughs> was like, well, these guys are lying. It's clearly not their horse. Well done. That's such a dirtbag King Solomon moment. And I, I love it for her. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. So Catalina saddled up and left at that point. <laughs> and I never learned how it ended because I was already on my way to Cusco. She was minding her own business, gambling with cards at her friend's house, when a dark, hairy giant of a man sat down next to me, a menacing fellow everyone called El Cid. I went on with my game and won the hand I was playing, but then El Cid stuck his paw in my winnings, her words, not mine, palmed some of my gold and walked out. Catalina slipped out her dagger. And so I will say that there's basically one one of the movies about this story starts with this. Starts with this? Starts with the story of El Cid, yes. So Catalina slipped out her dagger, went on with the game, and the next time El Cid stuck his hand out, she saw it coming and skewered his hand to the table with the dagger. Yes. <laughs> so, then, so then everyone got up and pulled out their swords. <laughs> yes. And Catalina slipped out into the street, which was a piece of luck, seeing as how they were about to chop me into pieces. El Cid came after her, as did the others. Um, but just at that moment, two Basqueros were walking by and they were like, oh, you're from the Basque country. So are we. <laughs> <laughs> so they're fighting, fighting. Um, Catalina fell to the ground in a sea of her own blood. And then everyone took off. Quote, I pulled myself to my feet, the taste of death in my mouth. She got up and she saw El Cid was still there. And he was like, you still alive? And she stabbed him with like the last bit of energy she had. They both collapsed to the ground. And when onlooker said, all that remains to be done is their last confessions, because they both seemingly were about to die. El Cid died right there. But some good-hearted people took Catalina to the house where she'd been staying and put her to bed, but they wouldn't let the surgeon come help her until after she'd done her confession, because they were like, you're clearly going to die. So it's like, we can either do your last confession, or we can give you surgery, 
but like, we really need to do the last confession first because you're probably, you're going to die either now or in surgery. Um, a friar arrived to take her confession. And for the first time, Allison, Catalina told all, <gasps> including her gender. That poor friar must've been like, I was just trying to have a nice Thursday night. And suddenly we're talking for two hours in this woman's confession. And I didn't budget time for this. So they brought her a final communion wafer. (laughs) She's like, guess what I'll do with this thing. (laughs) So she took it and then she started to get better. I put in brackets, God, question mark. Perhaps. She was unconscious for 14 hours from the surgery and the pain, etc., Eventually she came to and she's moved to a Franciscan monastery to avoid her being arrested while still convalescing. The friars have just got her back. The church is like, we are here for you. Um, Knowing that she would probably be arrested and or the Sid's friends wanted to kill her. Catalina was like, I decided on a change of scene. That that was her words. That's one way of putting it. I decided to move away from all these people who wanted to arrest and kill me. The friars gave her money. I don't know if it's the friars or someone else. Maybe the, oh no, I think it was maybe the Basque people who she met. Someone gave her money, three mules and some weapons and three enslaved people. And so in the company of the Basque men who helped out, she left Cusco. But then guess what? Like with the thing with Reyes before, like El Cid's friends were like, we will avenge this guy. We're his Hat gang strikes again. Yeah. So en route somewhere, some of El Cid's friends confronted her including a constable who arrested her for his murder or sorry, who wanted to arrest her for the murder, but they tried to arrest her, but she obviously fought back her five person squad, which is like her, the two Basque men, the three enslaved people um, against the eight of them. She shot the constable with her pistol and the rest took off. And then she continued on alone. Not sure why, other than two of the enslaved people were killed in that fight. The Basque people, I guess, were just like, Godspeed. I don't know. She just didn't like traveling in a group. So, she hung out in the city of Huancavelica, Peru, staying in an inn for a few days, quote, scouting the place out. But then she saw a constable approach a justice of the peace outside and show him a picture. <laughs> They're like, look at the picture. Look at her. Look at the picture. <laughs> Hang on. <laughs> Wanted, it says. Um, face slashing. Catalina. Here's a great quote. Strolled on as if I didn't have a care in the world, when in truth, my cares were piling up like flies on meat. They grab her. She pulls out her pistol in one hand and her sword in the other, attacks them, then takes off running, steals a horse from a passing man and rides off. I love the image of her pistol in one hand, sword in the other hand. That seems Sim- really inefficient. Like, how do, you, how do you cock the pistol if you have a sword in the other hand? But like, I, I, I trust that she can do it. Oh, at this point, what can't she do? Except control herself. Yeah, except like a single good decision. So she paused, so she stole a horse and then she, you know, rode off. Eventually she had to pause to like rest the horse, not herself, but the horse. And then three men on horseback approached wading across the river towards her. They're like, we're here to arrest you. Or like, we were sent here to arrest you. And she said, quote, if you've gotten it in your heads to take me alive, that cannot be. First, you'll have to kill me and then you can arrest me. Truly, she just yelled, you'll never take me alive, covers, which, like, amazing. But the men were like, quote, the truth is we would like nothing better than to serve you, not kill you. <laughs> they're like, we stand. Yeah, how would you not? I mean, there are lots of reasons why you could not. But So she left them some doubloons and headed off because they didn't actually want to arrest her. They just had to go and try. So you can see her, like, legend is growing. 
right? Like people are fans of hers. Then she entered the city of Ayacucha, sold her horse and went out to admire the city, the most handsome I'd seen in all fruit. Side note, towards the, this is like the final third of her memoir. It really gets into like a travelogue where she's just like, in this place, there was a building that looked like this and this one with a ceiling. And I'm just like, why? Why are you telling me this? Like, okay, thanks for this like travel advisory. She spent the next few days in a local gambling house. Where else? Where the sheriff came in and recognized her as being wanted in Cusco. So she pulled out the sword, her pistol, and ran off to hide in the home of a Basquero she'd met in town. The Basques, like, this is where I really, like, that's why I explained about the Basque country at the beginning, because they just, like, protect their own. They're, like, it's a real thing. This is the strongest alumni network I've ever seen in my whole yeah. life. Okay, so she says, quote, there was no word of the case, no sign that the law was pursuing the matter, but still, it seemed like a good idea for me to move on. <laughs> and so... yeah. She left town. Her bad luck continued. She's met by two constables who asked for her name. And she said, the devil. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you did. You messy bitch who lives for drama. Yeah, that's what you said. And they grabbed her and she pulled out her sword. People are sword fighting. Guns are involved. Then the bishop came up from his palace with four torchbearers and walked right into the middle, like, come with me if you want to live. And he took Catalina into his house to help dress her wounds, etc. Why? In the morning, the bishop was like, who are you even? And Catalina was like, well, (laughs) glad you asked. And told her whole story, including gender info, including this passage, quote, I left the convent, cut my hair, traveled here and there, embarked, disembarked, hustled, killed, maimed, wreaked havoc and roamed about until coming to a stop in this very instant at the feet of your eminence. So she just like told everything I've just told you. And the bishop and his people were basically like, but you're a nun? <laughs> Are you a virgin? Um, so that's what you're concerned about after what I just told you? After this like two hours, they're like, hmm, but you're a virgin nun? And she's like, like, if you want like women to inspect my like genital region, sure. And so that happened. That, um, if that's not on your bingo card for this podcast, by the way. <laughs> virginity <laughs> inspection. Yeah, true. So the bishop was so touched by news she was not just a woman, but a virgin, that he was like, quote, I esteem you as one of the more remarkable people in this world and promise to help you in whatever you do and to aid you in your new life in service to God. Okay, I feel like he is making one jump too many there in that sentence. Where it's like, okay, your hymen is intact, therefore you are a good person. (laughs) I mean, I will say one of the more remarkable people, like that is true. That is fair. But in your new life and service to God seems like a stretch. Oh, but Allison, she's becoming a nun again. What? Nun era 2.0. I just, I got nothing to say. Tell me more. Okay. So news of the Lieutenant nun began to spread around Peru and nearby regions so much that the Archbishop of Lima wanted to meet her. So Catalina, who had been living at this time, like in a nunnery with nuns as a woman, um, so they processed down to the Archbishop of Lima and like a processional. She was like wearing her nun's habit, but carrying a sword. And everyone in the street was like, that's her, the lieutenant nun. <laughs> that's me. She met the Archbishop and he was like, hey, which convent do you want to live in? There are numerous ones. And she was like, well, I have to see them all first. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> she went to see all of them. You know, mm, okay, House Hunters International. Don't ever move into an apartment until you inspect it yourself. Yeah. So, anyway, so she eventually chose the convent of La Santissima Trinidad in Lima, which is still there, um, where she remained for two years and five months, just like being a nun, which I really have trouble picturing. Um, I'm sure she was tired and she's been stabbed like many, many times. Yeah, maybe she's sleeping. Her yeah. nap era. Anyway, why did she stay there for only two years and five months? Because it took that long for news to reach them from Spain that, in fact, she had never taken her vows and, in fact, is not a nun. <laughs> Oh, boy. So she was like, so long, nuns, and headed back to Spain. There was an armada just leaving town, as there is. And so she caught a ride, dressed like a man again. While on the ship, stop me if you've heard this before, a fight broke out over a game of cards. And, quote, I was forced to cut another man's face with a little knife I had on me. (laughs) As as happens. These things happen. Well, if you've been a nun for so long, she just had this built-up, pent-up, like, face slashing energy that had nowhere to go. For two years and five months since I've slashed a good face. So the general removed him to a different ship where there was more people from the Basque country because he's like, we can't keep you on a ship with like Spanish people. Let's just put you on the Basque ship where I guess face slashing is cooler. Anyway, so they made it across the ocean to the Spanish city of Cadiz, meeting up with another armada where two more of Catalina's brothers were there. I'm putting down... Two marks on our random family member list. Yeah. But at this point, she's the lieutenant nun. Like, people know who she is. She's not being like, I'm Francisco. Like, people know. So they would have been like, we're literally your brothers. So even though we haven't seen you in 30 years. Yeah. So as an honor to Catalina, because she's now this famous person, the general took one of the brothers into his personal service and gave the other a promotion just for being the brothers of the lieutenant nun. So then she went to Sevilla, where she had to hide out from... There's not paparazzi, but like just like fans. I like the idea of a 16th century paparazzi is just one man with a sketch pad, like furiously drawing her portrait as she walks. Chasing after her like, Catalina, what do you want to say? (laughs) I need to make a broadsheet. Tell me what you would like to tell the people. Yeah. Speaking of like there were like people are making what is is that it? Broadsheet pamphlets like. Yeah. Pamphlet pamphlet moment. Definitely. Stories were being written about her. Everyone was excited about this whole cross-dressing situation. Everyone wanted to see the lieutenant nun. Um, She went to Madrid where she went unnoticed for 20 days um, and she enjoyed being anonymous. She didn't, she didn't, she wasn't made for this like famous person life. She's made for the dirtbag life, you know? So then she decided to go to Rome, I think to talk to the Pope. She does later talk to the Pope. She does not this time. En route to Rome. Of course, she ran into trouble. To get to Rome from Spain, you have to go through France. So while she was in France, she was accused of being a Spanish spy and was arrested, had all of her money taken and was kept in jail for five days. Then they were like, oh, guess you're not a spy. Sorry. So she headed out penniless again, barefoot, reduced to begging door to door, even though she's like the most famous person, maybe not famous in France. In Toulouse, she visited a count who knew her. I don't remember if he was in the story before. And he gave her new clothes, some money and a horse. So she headed, she's like rethinking the Rome thing, headed back to Madrid, where she presented herself before the king and requesting a soldier's pension for all of her military service. And she's like, I wrote a a memoir of my life story if you'd like to read it. And he's like, we'll think about it. I don't think she met the king. I think she just went and was like, can you please tell the king? This is me. This is my memoir. I would like a pension. Thank you. Then she went to Barcelona. Literally, she cannot stop traveling. And she and her travel companions, not sure who they are, 
were robbed. Feels like Spain is just no, no more or less dangerous than um, South America. It's just like there's assholes everywhere. Anyway, they were robbed. You might ask yourself, why didn't she just stab and kill everybody? She's going to have an answer for that in a bit. Anyway, so they arrived in Barcelona, quote, embarrassed and naked after nightfall on Easter Sunday, 1626. So this is again where we're just like, does she mean naked? Or does she just mean like wearing just our like inner right. pantaloons is this or like whatever? a full night's tale scenario where she's trudging naked down the road? Like, Not I sure. Don't... At this point, though, people do know she's a woman. So that wouldn't be a deal breaker, like in terms of her identity. She went from house to house crying out that she had been robbed. And some people were like, well, here's my like old cloak or whatever. Then she took shelter in a doorway with some other wretches from whom she learned the king was in town. So she went in the morning to see the king to explain what had happened. And he was like, how is it you allowed yourself to be robbed? You know, victim blaming. But also what we know of her, like, yeah. <laughs> so, sorry, he said, how is it you allowed yourself to be robbed? And Catalina said, senor, I had no choice in the matter which is her answer. I think it was like, there was like 20 of them, you know, three on her side or whatever. Anyway, the king is like, okay, I will read your memoir. And he, <laughs> and he did. And he's like, what a great story. <laughs> um, and he granted her four times the allowance of a part-time lieutenant along with 30 ducats for expenses and hardship. And she's like, thank you so much. I'm off to Genoa. Why? I don't know. Obviously one of the first things that happened when she got to Italy is she got into a sword fight with some guy, totally not her fault. Other people noticed and it turned into a big like group sword fight. <laughs> and she was able to slip away unnoticed because everyone was fighting everyone else. I love it. I, I want to see that in the film version. Honestly. It's, that feels very Shakespearean to me, actually. Um, and then she caught a ride on a ship going to Rome where she met the Pope. And this when the Pope is Pope Urban VIII. And I was excited for a bit when I saw the crossover, because remember, she's born around the same time as Njinga. I'm like, is this the same pope who Njinga was writing letters to? Like, no, that was another guy 20 years later. But this was the pope who summoned Galileo to recant his work, which he famously did not. So a notable pope, not known for being understanding. And I think the, well, the way that she was able to see the Pope is she was so famous. Like at this point, even in Italy, it was just like the Lieutenant Nun. Like, so she's like, okay, like, to her credit, she's like, how can I parlay this into like money and privileges for myself? So she told the Pope her life story. This is like the third time she's been like, I was born Catalina de Arauso, <laughs> San Sebastian, in- <laughs> whatever. Anyway, so she's like, here's my life story. Please note, I am also a woman and a virgin. And he, quote, seemed amazed to hear such things and graciously gave me leave to pursue my life in men's clothing all the while reminding me it was my duty to lead an honest existence from that day forward. And then his commandment, thou shalt not kill, was important and should be obeyed. <laughs> Do you remember that you're not supposed to kill people? I feel like you've forgotten that you're not supposed to kill people. So let me just say it one more time. <laughs> it's one of the like main rules of the religion. Kind that of a big one. <laughs> we have, but also just like of life. In a secular like, I'm really, way. I love that the Pope was like, I'm, I really could not possibly care less if you wore pants or not, but like, please stop killing people. That would be great. But yeah, so she got official papal dispensation to wear pants, which is pretty iconic. Amazing. 
Yeah. So this is, I was reading, um, there's a book called Transgender Warriors by Leslie Feinberg, which doesn't say a lot about Catalina. So I didn't mention it in my references, but um, where Catalina is mentioned one time, what Leslie Feinberg says is notable is that compare and contrast to Joan of Arc. So there's like 200 years difference, but it's notable that the Catholic church and French ruling class saw Joan's gender expression, e.g. pants wearing, as a threat where Catalina, who fought on the side of colonization, had the Pope's approval to keep wearing pants. So almost like there's inconsistency Mm. in in, uh, the rules that are applied by the Catholic church. Anyway, she has pants permission. She has a generous um, pension, but she's still like, I feel like this point 30 years old. So I think around that. But even in Rome, she was super famous. Princes, famous people, like other famous people, like painters and whatever, bishops, everyone followed her around, like literally followed her around. She says, wherever I went, people's doors were open. And in the six weeks I spent in Rome, scarcely a day went by when I did not dine with princess. And then there's like a scene where she's walking down the street and three like women, like sex workers are like, hey, are you Catalina de Arauso? And she like draws her sword and she's like, get away from me. And that's the end of the memoir. What? But that's not the end of my story. That's a wild place to end your memoir. Yeah. It was, it's, and it's not just like, and then she died. In the memoir. It's like, no, this is the memoir. And that's, yeah. the, that's the end of it. I would end it with like, and then I got people permission to wear pants at the end. But honestly, yeah, that, that is the climax of the story for me. I guess this is more like a post credit sequence. Mm. Um, so here's what probably happened next. So she may have settled for a while in Naples, where she wrote the manuscript that became her memoir called The Story of the Nun Ensign. Uh, the manuscript was left in Italy. Um, where many years after her death, it was found by a Spanish man who published it in 1829, which reminds me of how Mary Shelley like left all of her papers in like a French hotel. She wrote her memoir, left it there. It was not published. And then she returned to Spain where she met the playwright Juan Perez de Montalban, who wrote a drama based on stories told to him by Catalina. And the play obviously became very popular. So the character in it was not called Catalina de Arauso. The character was called like Guzman. So as you understand, as a person who's written historical fiction, um, Montalban was like, okay, I need to give this like a character arc. I need to like have motivation. A sequence of murders spread across the country. (laughs) Yeah. It can't just just be like this nihilistic person who just like never learns from their mistakes. I need to have like a story. So this is where the story is in this play um, is that Catalina sort of falls in like chivalrous love with this woman. And, but then like the woman, there's also a man. And then eventually Catalina and the woman are caught together. And the woman thinks Catalina is a man anyway. And that's what she has to be like, no, I'm a woman. And so she like reveals her identity in order to protect the like virtue of the woman she loves and the woman she loves marries this man. So it's like, okay, let's take Catalina. So like her adventures are in there too, but it's wrapped up in this like love story situation. But also cross-dressing women plays were like very popular in the era and time. As you know, there were surprisingly more than one of them, which is like wonderful. Love them as a genre. Wonderful. Which is interesting because so in Spain, um, women were allowed to act in plays and like in England. So it was like actual like it was women playing characters who were disguised as men. So a lot of it was like people thought it was so sexy to see women in pants. So the women characters were often, um, it was a male gazy sort of like cross-dressing, like, which is different from in England where it was like men playing women playing men, where it's all like this meta textual, like, woo. Right. 
but in Spain, it was more just like, this is the way we can see women in pants. Uh, <laughs> how sexy. Yes. Yeah, so even though it was like illegal for women to wear pants, except for not on stage, there are no rules in the theater. Everything's allowed. Exactly. Everything was allowed. So it was like, I think the authorities or whatever tried to like tamper down on that, but like everyone loved these women in pants plays so much. They're like, well, they can't stop it. They're so popular. And it was during this time that she had the painting made of her where she's just like scowling with her like bob haircut. And he was the painter's Francisco Pacheco, who is a very notable painter who painted like, um, who wrote Don Quixote? Cervantes, like he painted him, like he, so it really shows like how popular and famous she was that like he painted her. Mm -hmm. Eventually tiring of this sedentary life as one might imagine. She's been in the one place for like multiple months. Yeah. Well, and also she's like 30 years old. She's not just like, oh, I'm going to retire to a life in the country. She's still like got lots of killings left to do. Right. Mm -hmm. She wasn't just like, I'm going to go on adventure, come back, write my memoir and just like peace out, like run a vineyard. Like, no, she didn't want any of this. She wanted to just like run around and be a dirtbag. And suddenly she's this like celebrity and she's like, I want to just like be a dirtbag again. But because of various reasons she had to ask the king for permission to return to the americas to go into business there she couldn't just like go because she was famous you know she couldn't just like hang around using pseudonyms anymore so he agreed and so now she's using the name francisco de arauzo because i guess she'd been francisco de loyola for so long she just got used to being francisco but now she used her own last name and this is where it's like is this a trans narrative like she took on this male name even though everyone knew she was a woman yeah. But this is where we're just like, Bruh. hard to say. Her memoir she wrote begins with, I, Donya Catalina de Rosso. Right. So, like, I'm just going with that. So, the ship headed for Mexico, um, 1635. The ship landed. So, she's like 40 ish now, I think. So, the ship landed at Veracruz, which is coincidentally where Malinzine was born 135 years earlier. It's a little crossover moment of ghosts, but there was a terrible storm. So do they, I don't know if they show this on the pirate show. I don't know a lot about boats, but like when your boat gets close to land, you don't just like park your boat <laughs> on the beach. <laughs> you like drop anchor a bit a ways out and you have your like, little boats. Yeah, your little boat, right. You get yeah. on your little boats and then the little boats are what goes to shore, right? Right, because otherwise your boat is going to get stuck in the sand and you'll never get it out again. Exactly. So there's a terrible storm. So they're like, ooh, can we get on our little boats? Like this is a terrible storm. Um, But a group decided to disembark despite the dangers. Guess what? Catalina was one of those people. The small landing boat finally reached shore. But when the captain did roll call, Catalina was not there. So they all assumed she had drowned. And maybe she had. From this point on, there are no records of Catalina in official Spanish recordings. But it's also possible she took advantage of the situation to take on a new persona, escaping the whole Lieutenant Nun fame game and just landing on shore and being like, I'm Alonzo Gutierrez. (laughs) Four more last names. A a simple llama herder. (laughs) I think because there was a thing before she left, she removed herself from the estate of her family. Like she just didn't want to be involved in inheriting anything. And then there's some paperwork that mentioned like a brother called, I think, Antonio de Arauso. And none of the brothers was called that. So they're like, is that her? I love that her, her biography begins like she was born in this year or maybe not. And it ends <laughs> with like, she might have died or, or not. not. <laughs> She's still in the wind. So according to some accounts, she lived another 15 years after this in a small Mexican village of Kitlatzla, 
dying in 1650 at age 58. Um, but this is like, she was a famous person. So I think people would just be like, oh yeah, I totally saw the ghost of Elvis, you know, sort of thing. The Bishop of Puebla believed that he had buried a woman there who was the Lieutenant nun and her tombstone of this woman, which is maybe her was engraved with the words, here lies a brave and Christian woman, which is debatable. No, if you could just give me your vote for what you think is a worse thing to put in a tomb, which is Fredigan's tomb, which is like, here lies a wife and mother or Catalina's tomb that says, here lies a brave and Christian woman. <laughs> that is, that's hard. That's hard. Because those are two really bad options. I, wow. It's almost as bad as the model of the story being persistence and hard work. <laughs> <laughs> well, and here's the thing about this one. I won't make you actually vote. They're both equally terrible. I think we can agree. But so even the fact that it's like, here lies a brave and Christian woman, where it's like, Christian, debatable. <laughs> Woman, debatable. debatable. Brave, brave. Pro- yeah. Stupid, hard, hard to draw the line. Okay, so the legacy. The character of the Lieutenant Nun was and remains today a source of inspiration for writers, playwrights, filmmakers, and artists. Although you had not heard of her, so not any large notable works. She is an inspiration for me now. Yes, yes, yeah, and people. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So she's also been an inspiration for many analysis and academic papers in gender studies programs. So she has been featured in films, notably the 1944 Mexican film La Monja Alferez, which means the nun lieutenant, which I sent you a picture of that. So it's starring Maria Felix, who is a very famous um, and sexy Mexican lady film star. It was directed by the Mexican director Emilio Gomez Muriel. And so... This was mostly kind of like the plays from her lifetime. It was mostly film made to show up how good Maria Felix looks in pants with tall <laughs> boots. Like she is styled up like her, she's a face of makeup. Like she her hair is like curled. It's like, yes, this is a woman in 1944. It's a movie that was made. I think Maria Felix had done a previous movie where she played like an oldie time woman who wore pants. And they were like, how can we get Maria in another <laughs> film in pants? Um, so it was very much just like, let's have a movie about this sexy actress. So that is, that is the legacy, which leads us to scoring. Oh my goodness. Now I don't know how you score these people on your podcast because my instinct is always just to give everybody full, full points all the way across the board. It's so hard. I do as well. I do as well. But I feel like I need to end. I like with the Njenga one that like, it was a struggle for me Um, to just, cause I'm just trying to bring up my list of things, but for part of it, like the first one is scandaliciousness. And part of that, and part of where Njinga didn't get perfect marks in that, for instance, is she did stuff like the murder wedding, but everyone was kind of like, okay, like it to us feels scandalous, but to the people. So I think of it in a cultural context, like how scandalous was the stuff this person was doing to the people around them at the time? So what I will say about Catalina is um, not just the like pants wearing, like she became this celebrity because I was like, pants, she's wearing pants, which was scandalous, right? And then also like, yes, she was being this like Wild West serial killer, but kind of everyone else was. But there was that part where they were like, you're you're more than all everybody else here. Yeah, your genocidal tendencies are too much for even us, the Spanish armada. (laughs) So like she was... Yeah. So like she does seem to be scandalous even for her time. 
And I do think this is might be her. I feel like I this have... is where she would score highest. Yeah, yeah. It's tricky. But it's always tricky. Cause I'm just like, if we if we like assuming it's a 10, but like what could make it be not a 10 would be that she when they found out that she was a woman, they weren't like, burn the witch. They were like, we like that. Yeah. She did have like a fan club. These people kept helping her. Yeah. The Basque people and also just like the friars. But the fact that the Pope was like, like Joan of Arc, for instance. Yeah. They were like, no, this is terrible. Let's kill her. And Katerina, they were like, you little scamp wearing pants. I'll allow it. So like the effect of it was like scandalous and exciting to people, but it wasn't to the extent that she was like. Yeah, she's it was never, scandalous in an interesting way to them. She was never punished for the scandal, right. really. But like how many people did she kill for how many I lost count. bullshit reasons? Yeah. I don't know. Why is your instinct on this? I don't think it's a 10 because of the cultural context. I'd but agree. I do think it's certainly a high score. Yes. Um, I think you have better instincts than me. I'm thinking between an eight and a nine. I'm, let's go 8.5. Okay. Okay. Now, scheminess is interesting. She had a lot of schemes, most of them bad. Yes. Are we? Is this good scheminess, quality scheminess, or is this just determination to fuck things up? <laughs> this, yeah. This is just like, did she do schemes? full stop whether they were good or bad or successful I do or think not we have to give her some points for spitting out the host as a scheme like that is an a plus scheme that was a good scheme i do think that's a lot of this stuff it's like she was gonna be killed but then someone was just like well i'll rescue you and that wasn't like her even though persistence and hard work is the moral of the story right that was just like a deus ex machina mm-hmm. that wasn't her scheming her way out of trouble and a lot of the trouble she got into wasn't schemey either. It was just kind of like I got in a bar fight and killed someone. It was just one terrible decision after another. It was there was not a lot of machinations behind the scenes. It was just like, what's a loud, silly thing I can do? But counterpoint, the scheme to escape the nunnery and then to sew the clothes was pretty good. That was well planned. But so much of what she did was just chaotic and not like scheminess rewards people who like have a goal plan towards it and execute something cool. And she did in that first one, getting out of the nunnery. That was a executable scheme. Beyond that, it was kind of just like, how can I live my chaos lifestyle? Yeah. So it was, it was like a thousand little schemes. Most of them were just like, what if I stab someone? Yeah. Which is not really like, I, I like to word scheminess as like, it's like intelligence in that way. It's kind of like someone who like is able to just like roll with the punch and see what's going on. And she wasn't, not that she needed to be, um, this isn't, there's a lot to criticize, but I'm not criticizing. I'm not saying that her schemes were bad, but it's just like, she was they, not in the scheming game. She they didn't the need to be. Yeah. Like scheminess. You get a lot more of that. Like if you're in Royal court, right. Where you need to like get alliances and whatever. And she was just a lone wolf. Like she was going place to place, did some shit, moved on. She wasn't there to be schemey, but escaping the nunnery was a good scheme. The, the communion house was a good scheme, but it was suggested to her by someone else. I still think she pulled it off with flair, though. What about like a five for scheminess? I'd allow it. Because the two schemes were quite effective. Yes. That she did do. They were two good schemes through a life not particularly schemey. Okay, so significance is 
this is where people who are not literal royals don't often score highly. Um, the significance. Okay. So like she did in, in her day, she inspired plays. Like she was like, have this portrait made, like people really excited about her at the time, but it hasn't, there's not today. The stuff she did inspires like the gender stuff. Like it's really interesting. Um, and she, people are writing about that. And I don't want to be like, especially with like queer history stuff. It's like, what's the significance? It's like, well, this person lived chaotically and then died, but it's like, but it's significant to like the canon of like queer history that her story exists. And so I think that should be respected. She was significant at the time, but it's like. Yeah. As far as like big geopolitical significance, she didn't like found a dynasty or change a country's. No, and it's not like she the plays she inspired are still done today. Although I would love a revival. Yeah, there was the 1944 movie and then there was a later movie, I think in the 90s, I think during the re-lesbianization era. And I think it was also like a what about a lesbian movie about her? So like there's people who've covered on this podcast, like Mary Toft with the rabbits, where it's like, what is her significance? Like, like no one's ever done a movie about that. Like no one's. So Catalina de Eroso is one level above that because she has had these things mm-hmm. done about her. Yeah. What do you think? Oh, this is hard. It's yeah. But that's, but that's kind of what the categories are for. It's like, yeah, it's a way that different people can score highly in different areas. Like it's an aberration and weird how high the last couple of people have done because they did have all four things. Uh-huh. But this to- has one category really, really high. And yeah, yeah. her significance. I don't know. It's kind of like, that's also there for people who are like, if God forbid I ever do a, someone like Jane Seymour, who's like extremely boring, but incredibly significant. It's a way to give someone like that points if they weren't schemey, if they weren't scandalicious. Right. What about a five for significance? Where it's just kind of like, it's not high, but it's higher than other people. And just like the queer history of it all. Yeah. Getting a, a pants dispensation from the Pope, I think, is a, a good moment. Actually, yeah. You know what? The How many people did that? And that would probably set precedent that maybe other people later got pants dispensation. I think a five sounds fair. And also that in terms of significance, just like how many battles was she in? And were won because of her. How many lives did she ruin by murdering people? I mean, if you're counting significance by how many people she brutally murdered, she is very significant. The ripple effects of her life in Peru. Yeah. I think are so five. I'm happy with five. Okay. And then this is a very tricky one for her because the sexism bonus. So technically, I added that category also for people who could have done more stuff, but didn't because sexism was keeping them down. Right. So it's a way it would be rare for someone to have a high sexism number and a high scandalicious number, you know, mm-hmm. but I always start off with a baseline of five because like the patriarchy is there and like all women and other people who are not men face a certain amount of that bullshit all the time. So the sexism bonus here would be like she had to live in a nunnery from four to 15, even though that's clearly not what she wanted to be doing and then the fact that like when they found out she was a woman they were like well can we just like let's just do a little genitalia exam um and then the fact when they found out she was a woman it was like you're uh you know like she was the way she's treated so it's like she was treated 
I don't know, better. Like when she became a celebrity, she hated that, but she got more money and kind of more attention. Mm -hmm. But she kind of didn't want that. Like she just wanted to be this dirtbag whose gender didn't matter. But then it came to really define her. But then she wrote the memoir. So she like cashed in on it. So she's not like, oh no, my fame. Like she wrote a memoir called like, I am the Lieutenant Nun. So she wasn't like hiding it. Yeah, I don't think she scores very highly here. I think there's some aspects of it, sure. I think that might be a five as well, which is kind of like the standard. So when I add that all up, 15. So that's a 23.5. And again, I just want to reiterate, like a score on the scandalousness scale is not being like who's better than each other. It's just like, here's these four random things. And where does everyone fall in these categories? It's 23.5 is 0.5 higher than Bodica. Bodica only got a 23, but I guess we don't know. Christopher Barlow, (laughs) (laughs) 22.5. I feel like just, well, this is just the Alison Epstein of it all, but I think there are People who are fans of Christopher Marlowe, I think, would also be fans of Catalina. I tend to like people who score high on the scandaliciousness part of the scale. And the rest of it is somewhat hit or miss. Yeah. So just like, what did I say? It was 23.5. But what a story, honestly. I don't know. Again, like this doesn't mean anyone's better or worse. It's just kind of like on these four random things, what are people... Yeah, because there's people at the bottom who score high in significance. There's people on the bottom who score high in scandalousness. But as you get higher, it's, it's people about, who can are... you hit all four categories? Yeah. Yeah. And it's not like Catalina was trying to. No, she was not. <laughs> she just wanted to just like kill people and wanted to slash faces and take names. And that's the thing about it too, where, you know, like I was saying, there's so much of the academic stuff is just like, but what about what does this mean for gender? And there's lots to discuss about that, certainly. But I feel like both of our takeaway from this is like, that is not the most interesting thing about the story. No, I am. There's so much more in the story. There's so much everywhere in the story. It's just wild. And I, again, like I'm just lately learning more about queer history and stuff. But I think it's also important to talk about queer people who were disasters. Yes. In fact, strong <laughs> agree. They don't all need to be wonderful examples of good people. They are. They're disasters in every part of history exactly and so just looking at people as nuanced and well-rounded although i think catalina nuanced well-rounded uh persistent and full of hard work i think that's a big takeaway it's like persistence and hard work is (laughs) (laughs) that's how you gain success there is thank you allison can you tell everybody or remind everybody about your newsletter and other things that they should know about you? Yeah. If you like historical dirtbag stories like this one, um, I write a newsletter called Dirtbags Through the Ages, which is a Substack newsletter that just features one different historical dirtbag every two weeks. Um, there will be one about Catalina shortly as soon as I get around to writing it. That's at uh, rapscallison.substack.com. It's rapscallion with an S in it. And that is also my handle on Twitter and Instagram if you want to follow me there. I'll put all those links in the show notes as well. So people can just easily tap a button to follow you and all those things and tell people about your book. Yeah, I wrote a book. Uh, it's called A Tip for the Hangman. It is about uh, Elizabethan poet Christopher Marlowe. There's lots of dirtbag activities in there too. That one is available in all the ways you buy books and all the places you buy books. 
Yeah, he, well, I mean, we uh, literally did a whole episode where you're talking about him. But yeah, he had not in the murder way of Catalina, but also just in terms of like queer history, people who are like disasters. Yeah. Who just make <laughs> bad decisions. <laughs> yes. Yes. Which I think, yeah. Well, and then I, I mentioned also, but yeah, podcast. So there's like the Bad Gays podcast, and they have a book coming out actually, also called Bad Gays. And then there's the Historically Very Good Friends, like um, History is Gay. There's lots of really good podcasts that really delve into queer history. And I recommend people listen to those as well. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thus ends the saga of Catalina de Arauso. And this is also, I think, the halfway point of this season, which is like the longest season that we've done so far. There's just so many good stories to tell. There's a bunch of episodes still to come. And I'll just remind you of all the things I always remind you of. So if you go to vulgarhistory.com, there's a little place there. That's where you can contact me um, with your suggestions of people to talk about on the show, etc. Uh, if you go to vulgarhistory.store, vulgarhistory.store, that's where our merch is, including two different designs of the um, persistence and hard work can perform miracles. Iconic quote, one of the designs does have a llama on it. And remember, you can always use code tits out for free US shipping or tits out 10 for 10% off. Uh, we're on Instagram at vulgar history pod, um, on Twitter at vulgar history and, um, yeah. And then the Patreon is there for people who would like to get more content from me every month you get every month or so. I would say it's like every four weeks, you know, months, months are different lengths, but there's an episode of vulgar peace theater where I'm joined by Allison Epstein from this episode. Um, as well as Lana Wood Johnson to talk about various costume dramas. Most recently, we talked about the animated film Anastasia, which you might think, is that a costume drama? And yeah, Anastasia has so many outfits in that. Um, and then also every month we do so this asshole episodes, which is where I just like put a man from history on blast most recently. And this was voted on by the Patreons. I didn't want to do this, but I'm glad I learned about it. Um, Thomas Jefferson was the most recent episode there which was frankly mostly just me talking about sally hemmings but um yeah and i think that's everything so thank you so much for listening keep your mask on and your tits out talk to you next time and again there's like lots more episodes coming so bye bye <laughs>